0: I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Nahum. I'm sure it's a book that you turn to often for comfort and encouragement. We're making our way through the, through the, minor, through the minor prophets and we are, we are moving along. So hopefully by the end of next year we'll be, we'll be through these. But I do want to mention just from the beginning that uh, I'm so thankful for Crosspoint and the many ways that you guys have ministered to us. I don't know if many of you know, but we've lived with two families since Katie and I have been here in Baton Rouge and have been, count, uh, been ministered to in countless other ways. And so, um, just so thankful for the kindness of this body and how you show the love of Christ in so many ways. So, thank you. Uh, well, in the book of Nahum this morning, And if you read the first verse, you will see that Nineveh is back in the picture, but it doesn't look good for Nineveh this time. Just a couple books back in the book of Jonah, we saw that Nineveh was actually challenging Israel because of their sense of repentance. I'm going to turn this on because it is warm up here, warm thought. Sorry. Maybe not. Okay. Well, but Nineveh is back in the picture and it is not looking good. But we need to look at the time period. What's going on here? What's happened in Nineveh since Jonah was on the scene? Look, if you'll open your bulletins, if you haven't already, and take the white folded sheet of paper out there, and you'll see uh, just some introductory things about about Nahum. First, his name means comfort, and that's going to come into play in just a little while. But his time period, Nahum comes on the scene in 663 to about 612 B.C., 6.63 is when we know what's mentioned in the book of Nahum that uh, Thebes, a city, another city was destroyed. We know this historically that it was destroyed in 6.63 BC by Assyria where Nineveh was a capital. And so that's how we get that time period. And then 6.12 is when Nineveh is destroyed. And so we know sometime between this period that Nahum came on the scene and he was preaching. What about Jonah? What about Jonah. Jonah was in 793 to about 750 B.C. And so, give or take a hundred years, this is, what, this is the time period between Jonah had come on the scene, Nineveh had repented of their sins, accepted the message of God, and then Nahum comes, and they've returned to their evil, and we will see in this book that Nineveh is going to be destroyed. This is the prophecy that is coming. And so I want to make just a couple of points Immediately, just a couple points of application. Nineveh was a polytheistic city, so they worshipped many gods. So as Jonah came on the scene and presented this message of Yahweh that God had called them to repent they would have just assimilated this God. They would have said, okay, that's fine. They wouldn't have had any trouble accepting it that a God had commanded them to repent or they would be destroyed. But the problem was that they wouldn't accept Him as the only God, but they would have put Him within their system of all the other gods. And so, Nineveh would fit this message within what they already believed instead of letting it completely redefine everything that they believed. And so while they accepted the message of repentance and they and they repented towards this God, they still would have tried to worship all the other gods that they already had. And so there's a couple points of application here. First, are you trying to assimilate God into the rest of your life? You see what was different about Yahweh from all the in Israel from all the other nations surrounding them is that Israel was monotheistic. They worshipped one God. They saw that Yahweh was the only God they needed. He was the God of everything. Whereas the surrounding nations would have seen, you need multiple gods. You need a God for agriculture. You need a God who helps with fertility and all these things. And so they wouldn't have seen one God as sufficient. And the question is, do we try to assimilate God into our own lives and just kind of fit Him in? Or do we let God redefine everything? Absolutely everything. Because what happens to Nineveh is when they don't worship God alone, later the evil is just as bad as it was or worse and they're destroyed. And so that's the first question. Do you just try to assimilate God into the rest of your life or do you let it redefine everything? Everything. Secondly, we need to realize that as we're witnessing as we're trying to minister to people who've grown up in a worldview for a number of years, Nineveh had been within this worldview for a number of years. We need to realize that as we're ministering to people who've grown up in a polytheistic Hinduism, a Muslim faith, a system of faith where you have to earn God's approval, maybe a culture of, of violence or even secularism that it is going to take diligence of training, of teaching God's truth to change their worldview. Just because someone repents doesn't mean that they accept what the whole Bible says and they think according to what the whole Bible says. This is why the New Testament is constantly saying, be renewed in your mind. You have to change your thinking in accordance with the Scriptures, And so I think this is a great challenge to us for a couple of examples. William Carey in India. William Carey went to India and it was seven years before he had a convert. He went to India, devoted his life to missions, and it was seven years before he had his first convert. The same with Adoniram Judson. A similar thing happened. It says that the Buddhist traditions and the Burmese worldview at that time led many to disregard the pleadings of Adeniram and his wife to believe in one living and all-powerful God. African peoples are renowned for syncretism. They blend the belief in God and Christi- Christianity with everything else that they believe. So they still believe in animism. There might be a God in the rock or their ancestors coming back to haunt them and they blend these things instead of accepting God as the only God. I I think this is enormously practical. Our culture is becoming more and more secular. More and more secular. If you listen to the media in any way, you're going to be immersed in secularism. And so especially parents, where your children are involved in in secular things, and it, it just happens. If they're listening to the media or anything like that, we need to constantly be training them in the ways of the Scriptures, or they're going to think in accordance with that secular worldview. And so... Are we being diligent in this? This is what happened to Nineveh. Jonah came, he preached about God and God's uh, destruction of what was coming. Nineveh accepted it gladly, said yes, we will repent, we will turn from our sins. But they continued with these other gods and this is where they find themselves. Back in their evil. And so practically speaking, as a church... Are we being diligent to teach the world view of the Bible, to teach the scriptures, and to make sure it's getting in our minds, to getting in the minds of those that were around, to see the world differently, to see the world how God sees it. So this is very important. As we look at the structure of the book, in chapter 1, verses 2 through 8, you'll see this in your notes, there's an introductory psalm on God's character, and then it shifts, and God begins to address Judah and Nineveh, and then in chapter 2, through three, Nineveh is addressed specifically and it's about the destruction that's coming for them. The question that we're going to look at throughout the book of Nahum is, who's in charge? Who's in charge? Is it God's people that are in charge? Are they controlling the circumstances? Are they keeping themselves in power? Are they keeping themselves free from their enemies? What about their enemies? Are their enemies in charge? Assyria, Nineveh was a powerful, powerful city. We'll discuss that more in a moment. But is is it them that's in charge? Are they able to overpower whoever they want? Or is it God that's in charge? Is it God that's in charge and he can override no matter how powerful a nation is? Who is in charge? And so the first question that we'll address is, are God's people in charge? Are they keeping their situation, their circumstances under control in any sense? And of course, practically, this is to address us. Are we in charge in any sense? Are we in charge? Let's look at the situation. Look at Nahum chapter 1 verse 12. Verse 12. Thus says the Lord. Though they, and they refers to Nineveh, Assyria, are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, you being Judah, I will afflict you no more. The first thing we need to recognize about the situation is that Assyria was powerful during this time. Even as Nahum comes on the scene, Assyria is the mighty force. They are the superpower of the world. Judah, on the other hand, was being afflicted. They had been required to pay heavy tribute to Assyria. Assyria had also come in and taught Judah how to these other gods. And Assyria had been a cultural influence in the area. And at this point, God had been even using Assyria to afflict Judah, to discipline them because of their sins. But the time had come for Assyria to be punished and for God's people to be restored. So the first thing we see about this scene, and we know this for some of the minor prophets, that Assyria had been afflicting Judah. They had been knocking out cities around their edges. And the threat was always there that Assyria could come in at any time and completely destroy Judah. And so the situation is that Assyria is strong, but God will destroy them. That Judah is small and they are afflicted, but God will restore them. So the next question we need to ask is, how are God's people going to be destroyed? Or how are God's people going to get out of their situation? Excuse me. You would think, are God's people going to raise up, they're going to rebel, and they're going to take out Assyria? Is it going to be this heroic story where the underdog comes up and they uh, have victory? Absolutely not. You see, in 612 BC, when Nineveh and Assyria were destroyed, it was the Medes, the Babylonians, and the Scythians who would join together to to defeat Assyria. It was not God's people. God's people would not rescue themselves. God would use other nations to go and to destroy the Assyrians and to protect His people. It wasn't God's people who would take control of the situation. This is how we need to see God's work in history. That it's not God's people who ever rescue themselves, but it's always God who comes in, not needing His people to rescue themselves, but He does the work and He rescues them. He rescues them. They were completely at the mercy of God. God raised up other nations. These nations came together and they destroyed this mighty city who was trying to destroy Judah. And so in this way, historically, God protected his people. He preserved his people. Now what does this mean for us? We need to be very leery of a self-help mentality that says God helps those who help themselves or that God favors those who are successful. Instead, all of us need to throw ourselves completely at the mercy of God. Are you trying to wrestle yourself out of a situation that you're in? Are you trying to save yourself? What God says is, Come to me. I'm the Redeemer. I'm the one who saves. And He'll do it in the way He desires. He'll not just use your strength, it's His strength, it's His power. And so, this is what God did for His people. So, are God's people in charge? Absolutely not. In fact, they're afflicted, they're hopeless. And at this point, God is saying to them, I'm the one who's going to save. I'm the one who is powerful, not you. And so for all of you as well, do you feel weak? Do you feel hopeless? Don't be discouraged. God is the one to save. He doesn't expect you to do it yourself. God's people are not in charge. What about about their enemies, this powerful nation? Assyria. Assyrian today's terminology, they were the superpower. Nineveh, its capital, would have been the most protected of any city in the area. A palace constructed in Nineveh close to this time period contained 80 rooms and was called the Palace Without Arrival. Just to give you an idea of their extravagance, they believed that they were the most mighty place in the area and that no one could defeat them. There were two series of walls that surrounded the, the city of Assyria And the inner wall was about 100 feet high in height. If this wasn't enough, there was a moat that surrounded the city. And its geographical location, it was close to multiple rivers, so that it was difficult to attack. And so this this nation of Assyria was almost impossible to defeat. It looked like that they would remain the superpower for years to come. But... Let's look at what's going on in chapter 2, verse 13. In chapter 2, verse 13, we see God saying, Behold, speaking of Assyria, of Nineveh, God says, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord. This phrase occurs again in chapter 3, verse 5. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord. Will lift up your skirts over your face. I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? God is against this city, and it wasn't for no reason. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. It's, God says, it says, Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to their prey. Chapter 3, verse 4. The city was like a prostitute. She was char- a charming and a lover of magic. She made nations, slaves with her prostitution and her witchcraft. Also chapter 3, verse 19. This is the last verse of the book of Nahum. This is the emphasis here. Upon whom has not your unceasing evil come? You see, every nation had been afflicted by Assyria. And so it is not without reason that God is fully against them. He is against them for their immorality, for the sin that was pervasive in their culture. And it was for this that they would crumble. That God's judgment would come. Look at chapter 2, verse 6. We see next that their resources are insufficient. So, as God is against them, we will see that their resources, everything that they had pride in, Assyria would go, they would conquer these nations, and whatever they found in these nations, they would bring back to Assyria. And we'll find that their resources were insufficient for God's judgment. In chapter 2, verse 6, it says, The river gates are opened, the palace melts away. These rivers close by will be used for help to help these nations defeat Assyria, Nineveh. Chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. And so all these things that Nineveh had accumulated will leave. They will leave and they will not be of help to them. If you look at chapter 3, you'll also see that the merchants who had come to Assyria, many had come for business. There was great business opportunity in Assyria. But what happens as this goes bad is the merchants all leave. Everything that the people had hope in, their business opportunity, their wealth, everything is going to be gone as God's judgment comes to them. What's not stolen by other nations will be completely destroyed. And this is in chapter 2, verse 13. God says, I will burn your chariots in smoke. Nineveh would not be discovered until the 1840s. In the 1840s, this city that was known through uh, the biblical record and through other ways, it was known about, but it was never seen. It couldn't be discovered. Where was, where was the city? It was discovered in the 1840s, and they would find multiple layers of ashes where the city had been burned. Where the city had been burned. When Nineveh was destroyed during this time, it was completely destroyed. People would try to keep it going, but the city never would regain its power. God's judgment meant all they trusted in would be taken away. So the question we need to ask is, how will we be when it's just us and God? You see, that's what judgment is. God comes. Everything else that we've ever had is gone. And it's just us and God. And God judges us by His standard of righteousness. By His standard of righteousness. This is why Acts chapter 17 verse 31 says this, God has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. This is speaking of Christ. God will come, and in judgment He judges according to His standard of righteousness, according to the righteousness of His own Son, of Christ, who was sinless, who was perfect. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. This points to the resurrection. You see, the resurrection is God's yes to Jesus' claim that He is His Son and His yes to the cross. The victory over sin was complete for those who would believe. But for those who don't say yes to the cross, they stand in front of God with their own personal sense of righteousness. And the question is, will it stand up? Will it be sufficient? But for us who would believe, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the picture that we get that as we stand before God because of Christ, as we trust in Jesus and the cross, that we receive his righteousness So as we stand before God and God judges us according to the righteousness of Christ, we have that righteousness and so we are free, we are saved from his wrath. But for those who don't trust in him, they only have themselves and God judges them and they are in their sins and his wrath will come upon them. And so this is what happened to Nineveh. This is what happened to Assyria. All was gone that they had hoped in. And it was just God looking at them. And it was judgment. And the question is. How will you be. When it's just you and God. Think about it. Everything else that you have is gone. All that you have collected in your lives. Is gone. And it's you and God. Friends in our natural state. Born, God is against us. Romans chapter 5, verse 10 says this. While we were his enemies, he reconciled us. While we were enemies of God, he reconciled us. A good indication if you know Christ is asking yourself how you'll be. How you'll stand. What do you really put your hope in? You were naked before God. That's, this is what the text says. That it's just you and it's just God. Are you are you righteous, friends? It's only through Christ's righteousness that we don't receive God's wrath. So we see that God's people are not in charge here. They're not in charge in this book and what Nahum's telling us. God's the enemies of God's people are not in charge. No matter how powerful they are, no matter what they've accumulated, it won't be enough. They will be judged and they will be destroyed. So who is in charge? This might sound like a rhetorical question. From the beginning, you probably knew the answer. But if God's in charge, we also need to ask what that looks like. What does it look like for God to be in charge? Let's look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. The first thing we see about God being in charge is that he wipes out his enemies. Let's read verses 1 through 9 together. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Verse 3 The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither, the the bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt. The earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. What we first see about God being in charge is that he wipes out his enemies. We saw this in the first several verses that God, he is a jealous God. He's an avenging God. He is wrathful. He takes vengeance on his adversaries. He keeps wrath for his enemies. He's slow to anger, but at the same time, he will by no means clear the guilty. This is the balance that we must keep, believers that the god is that God is gracious and He is forgiving, but at the same time He will by no means clear the guilty there 's this this current movement towards tolerance. We talked about this uh, briefly last week, but there 's this Current thing where people will say well well, God will understand. If you talk to people witnessing, they they believe in this general God out there and they say "Well, well God will understand my sins, my actions and in a sense, yes Christ says because he's come in the flesh, he understands the temptations but for those who just continue in evil, God doesn't just understand God punishes those who rebel against him But God's wrath is not cruelty. It's not cruelty, it's righteousness. And your response to it should not be anger. There are some in our midst who would struggle with this. And it is difficult, but our response should not be anger. Instead, it should be seeing to it that people don't have to experience His wrath. It should be diligence in saying, God's wrath is coming to those who don't believe, and pleading with people to believe. Sometimes instead we just like to dialogue about how we don't like that God might be wrathful. But instead we should be busy about this if we believe it. And we should be telling people the good news of salvation in Christ. God does wipe out his enemies. Can you imagine a place where there was not justice? Where evil was not punished? But God has the highest sense of justice. And he will punish those who do wickedly. But he is gracious and he is a refuge for his people. Look at verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who take refuge in him. In one sense, this refuge, Nahum, would mean that God hides and shelters those who believe in him. He shelters them from wrath. You see, divine wrath is coming on these people because they don't believe. And they haven't trusted in him. And so in one sense, God is, Nahum is saying, God is a refuge. He protects from this wrath. But in another sense, we said earlier that Nahum's name means comfort. And this is always to be insightful for us as we look at these books. His name, it, his name means comfort. And so in another sense, God being a refuge means he is a great comfort to those who trust in him. This is what gives Christians endurance and hope. We should be the most hopeful people in the world. We should persevere like no people in the world. Consider Stephen in Acts chapter 7 verse 55, the first martyr. I'll read to you a verse. When Stephen is being stoned, it would seem like the most hopeless situation his entire life. But Stephen, when he's being stoned, it says he saw the heavens open and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. This is what gives Christians perseverance in the midst of difficulty. That God is a refuge and He is a comfort. That He comforts those who call on Him in truth. A more recent story. There is a a man named Andrew White. He's called the Vicar of Baghdad in post-Saddam Hussein, Iraq. And so you can imagine what this man might endure, the things that, goes on, that go on there. He says this about his experience there. He says, however dreadful the tragedy, my Lord is there. Amidst the greatest havoc I have witnessed in post-war Iraq, or in Gaza, or in Bethlehem during the siege, I have still seen God's glory. I have seen the heavens opened and glimpsed something of the majesty, might, and love of God. When life is full of despair, it is only the glory of God that truly sustains. There have been times when everything has gone wrong, when friends and colleagues have been killed, and there has seemed to be no hope. It is at times like this that I ask God to show me His glory. Egypt, Iraq, and Israel are all places where I work, and I have a profound sense that in the midst of all this conflict, the Lord is here and His Spirit is with us. Spirit was with us. God's people in the midst of this time period when Nahum is preaching were in great difficulty. People were surrounding them and they thought at any moment they could be destroyed. And the message then is the same as it is now. The Lord is good. And He's a stronghold in the day of trouble. And He knows those who take refuge in Him. Believer, this is what will give you perseverance. This is what will sustain you in times of difficulty. Do you take refuge in the Lord? Where do you need to be comforted? Do you believe God desires to be a refuge for you? And instead of exhausting all your other resources this week, will you seek refuge in God? Just this past week, there was a situation that came up in which I knew that anxiety could probably come up and I could be struggling with some things and I found myself seeking other people and going to other people looking to advice and for advice instead of immediately going to the Lord. You see, the truth is that God desires to be that refuge for us. He desires to give us a comfort, the peace that surpasses all understanding. So, people of God, are you seeking Him to be your refuge or are you seeking other people? Of course, God's body is meant to be an encouragement for you. But are you trusting mostly in others or are you trusting mostly in the Lord, completely in the Lord as your comfort? The other side of this is sometimes we have the opportunity to be a source of comfort and encouragement to people. People come to us and they ask for advice. What should I do in this situation? What, how should I feel? Those types of things. And the question is, for those of you who have that opportunity to encourage other people, is do you send them to the Lord to be their refuge, or do you try to provide your own sense of encouragement and your own twist on things? And this body, we should be sending people straight to the Lord. You should pray with them every time you have opportunity. And that shows them their hope is in the Lord. Any sense of comfort that even you can bring is only from the Lord. It's not in you. It's not in your wisdom. It's not in your ability to speak well. It's the Lord. The Lord is our refuge. I think this is what the song was getting at when it said, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in His wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. You see, as we find our refuge in the Lord, we begin to see things rightly. We see the world, we see our circumstances, the way that God sees them. Are you going to the Lord for refuge? He desires to be your comfort. So... God wipes out his enemies. He is a refuge to his people, but he also sends his peace. God sends his peace. Look to verse 15 of chapter 1. Verse 15 says, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feast, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. There were mountains surrounding Jerusalem. And so the picture is that this messenger comes because Assyria has been defeated, the greatest threat to Judah at the time. They've been defeated and this messenger comes and he proclaims this message of peace. What's important to note here is that God's people knew when they experienced defeat, it was because of sin. And so the reason God's people are in the situation they're in where they're facing this onslaught of people and possible defeat from Assyria, it's because of their own sin. They've worshipped false gods. We've seen in the other prophets that they showed injustice to their neighbors. And so the very reason they're here is because they betrayed the covenant with Yahweh. And so when we see this good news coming, as the people of God would have been in their city, and they see this messenger come, and he proclaims peace, you're not going to be defeated. This would have meant good news. Yeah, we're not going to be defeated. But also it meant God has been gracious. God has been merciful towards our sins. And he's not going to destroy us. And so as God sends peace, it means forgiveness it means mercy and this is why it is so easy for paul to take this passage and directly apply it in romans chapter 10 and verses 13 through 15 so if you'll look at these verses with me romans chapter 10 verses 13 through 15 Paul took this same passage in Nahum and he applies this this good news aspect to the peace part. And the good news is the gospel. The gospel. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, who preach peace, that your sins can be forgiven. That you don't have to experience the wrath of God, but you can experience His mercy and His grace because Christ came He came, he lived a righteous life, and he died. He died in his sins. His blood is to cover your sins. In his death, he took on the wrath of God so you don't have to take it. How beautiful are the feet of those who come and preach this gospel, this good news. See, Nahum teaches us that God is completely in charge. His people can't rescue themselves nor will the enemies of his people have a final say. God is the one who establishes peace and he establishes salvation. But there's more here. As we see this application in Romans chapter 10, God has given his church the responsibility of being messengers of his salvation. Paul says this. How then, Will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? The mandate, the application here is go preach the good news. Bring this message of peace to others that God sends His salvation to whoever will call on Him. To whoever will repent and bow to Him. As we close, I want to make this application there's a, there's a quote that I read when I was younger and that I really liked. It's by St. Francis of Assisi. It was, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. A lot of you have heard this before. And I, I'm not denying that our behavior is not important. That, that God won't use us as salt and light. But many of us take that verse and say, all we need is our lives. We just need to live rightly. We need to live before God. We need to live faithfully. People will see that, and then they will be converted. They'll just somehow be like, man, what's going on with you? And then just repent right there. The message of the Bible is that we're required to go and speak the good news. That quote by itself is insufficient. God will use our lives, and there will be opportunities like that. But by itself, it's insufficient. The message of the scripture is, be salt and light, but it's also, go proclaim the gospel. And so I want to challenge you, church, from the scriptures, are you finding opportunities, are you praying for opportunities to speak the gospel, to make it known? This is our call in making disciples of all nations, to go and speak, to preach the gospel to others. Are you doing this with your neighbors? Do they know that you're a believer? Do they know exactly what the gospel is? Have you explained to them the gospel? That God's wrath is on them because of their sins, but through Christ they can be redeemed. Do you know the gospel so that you can explain it to them? So in Nahum, it's not God's people who are in charge. They can't save themselves. It's not even a self-help thing. It's God completely coming and redeeming them. Acting on their behalf. It's not God it's not the enemies of God's people that are in charge. They won't have the last say. God will redeem, God will be victorious, and his people will be restored. They will be saved, protected, and God is in charge. He will wipe out his enemies. He will judge, but he is also a refuge to his people who gives strength, all the strength we need. No matter what the suffering. And he sends his peace. He sends his peace. So I will ask Stephanie to come. And I want to ask you. Do you know his peace? We asked the question earlier. How will you be when it's just you and God? When he judges you by his standard of righteousness. Listen, if all you have is yourself, you won't survive. You will be judged. His wrath will be on you. But as God sends His peace in Christ Jesus, you can receive the righteousness of God. And you can be protected from His wrath, saved from His wrath through the relationship with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to do that, if you'd like to know Christ, then we'd be glad to answer your questions. Glad to talk with you if you're even a skeptic and just thinking about it. But also believer in the room. Are you proclaiming God's peace? Are you proclaiming it? Are you speaking the gospel? Are you sharing it? This is how God has planned to build his church. Through the proclamation of the gospel. By his people. And he brings conviction of sin. And he draws people to himself. So believer are you being faithful? I'll ask you to stand in a moment. And we'll sing. But let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your salvation. Thank You that You send Your peace to us, Father, that it's, it's no work of our own. Lord, that we do nothing but You graciously send Yourself and You die for our sins. You save us. We thank You that that's not just a one-time thing where we just get saved and then have to walk on our own, and from then on it's us, Lord, but You continue to sustain us. You continue to lavish us in Your love and in Your kindness. Lord, it is you who works in us, both to will and to do for your good pleasure. We praise you for your greatness, God. Lord, I pray that we would be people that would proclaim peace, the message of your salvation, of your kindness. And God, I pray that if there are people in here that don't know you, Lord, who will not stand in judgment, Lord, they will receive your wrath. God, I pray that you would save them that you would draw them to yourself. And we pray, Lord, that you would bring more. God, that you would bring more here, but that you would use your people to proclaim your word and that you would draw people to yourself. We thank you, Lord. Thank you for being our refuge. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand.